Welcome to Nerd Heaven. I'm Adam David Collings, the author of Jewel of the Stars, and I am a nerd. This is episode 48 of the podcast, and today we're talking about the Star Trek Discovery episode, Sukal. This episode actually came out on the 25th of December here in Australia, so I spent my Christmas night watching Star Trek. Not a bad way to round off a happy Christmas, actually. The description on Memory Alpha reads, Discovery ventures to the Veruban Nebula, where Burnham, Saru, and Culber make a shocking realisation about the origin of the burn, as the rest of the crew faces an unexpected threat. This episode was written by Anne Coffell Saunders, it was directed by Norma Bailey, and it first aired on the 24th of December 2020. Make it so. This is a bit of an unusual episode, which took a few unexpected twists and turns, but it was still pretty good. It's got some thrills near the end, some growth for some of our characters, and some kind of weird but fun stuff with your A-team. We pick up right where we left off last week. Our characters are still at Giorgio's memorial. Adira is feeling pretty left out. Everyone here seemed to know Giorgio. They've all been through so much together. They all came from the 23rd century together. Adira is the odd one out, a native of the 32nd century, not a Starfleet officer. Stamets tries to reassure them that they're still part of the crew. The crew are all here for you. Colbert and I are here for you. And then Grey shows up. He hasn't appeared to Adira in a long time, with no explanation. I like how Stamets says to the empty air, You're lucky we're at a memorial service, because otherwise I'd be giving you a piece of my mind. I really like how Stamets just takes this thing at face value and doesn't treat Adira like they're crazy. He can't see Grey, but he believes that he's there, and even addresses him from time to time. But in hindsight, it's occurred to me that it may have been a good idea to recommend a medical examination, just in case, to make sure that Adira isn't hallucinating. I mean, the disembodied soul of a former Trill host appearing in a form that only the new host can see is not exactly out of the range of possibility in the Star Trek universe, but it might not be the only explanation. For all Stamets knows, Adira could have schizophrenia, which is probably not something you want to leave untreated. I don't think that's what's happening here, but it's probably a good idea to rule it out. Anyway, Grey explains why he's been absent. He's struggling with the whole disconnected aspect of his existence. He has consciousness, he has emotions, but nobody but Adira can see him. He can't interact with anyone else. That's not what life is supposed to be. It's like he's stuck in a limbo, a ghost that can't move on. This is a very believable reaction to his situation, and I'm glad the show is addressing it. Allowing Grey to feel this way and struggle with it. That's some emotional realism right there, the kind that I like characters to have. He also admits that his struggles are no excuse for simply vanishing without an explanation. He could have explained all of this to Adira before he vanished. Adira promises they'll work this out together somehow. Now with this nice little character moment done, we launch right into the main plot of the episode. They've recovered some new data from the Kelpian ship. 
there's a life sign. Saru reveals the Kelpian doctor was pregnant. That's what the marks on her head were about. I'm not sure why he kept this to himself, but anyway. Her child, now an adult, is still alive on that ship. So they jump into the Veruban Nebula, which looks awesome. I've learned through a little research while writing Jewel of the Stars Book 1, that if you were inside a nebula, it would not look like this. In fact, you'd see nothing. The gas particles are so sparse, they'd be essentially invisible. It's only many, many light years away, where you can see from a vast distance that the particles appear close enough to actually look like anything. But I can't help but forgive Star Trek for getting this wrong. And it's been getting it wrong since the Wrath of Khan, at least. Because it looks so good. And this nebula, with modern CGI, looks like something straight out of a Hubble image. Anyway, the radiation is wreaking havoc on the ship. They're going to have to leave the nebula, but Saru is unwilling, or at least hesitant. Michael seems to interpret this as emotional interest in the Kelpian. And in fairness, there may be some of that. But recovering this Kelpian is important if they want to understand the cause of the burn. And goodness knows Michael has been compromised by that obsession herself. This episode has a thread running through it of Saru can't be trusted to make rational decisions because there is a Kelpian on board. And I still don't get that. Kamina is still out there. He can go visit it next time he has shore leave. It's not like this crashed ship is his last chance to ever see his people again. I think the whole business is artificial and overdone. But we'll keep talking about this as the episode progresses. Anyway, Book takes his ship ahead. He has a better shielding, and his ship can morph, as he calls it. That morphing thing has never been explained. What exactly does this weird reconfiguration of his ship accomplish? What's it all about? While Book is mapping the nebula, Discovery jumps back to safety. The radiation gets to him a bit, but he manages to locate the ship and its life signs before Autopilot brings him back to Discovery. He'll be okay after some DNA recombination. The Kelpian ship crashed into a planet that's practically made out of dilithium. That's good news for the Federation. Saru plans to lead the away team personally. While not standard Starfleet procedure, it's not unheard of for a captain to be part of an away team, if it is deemed there's sufficient reason. Vance and Michael both give him a look for this, but Vance accepts it. It's Saru's call. Personally, I think Saru has sufficient justification for this. A single Kelpian survivor, all alone, never seen anyone else. Having someone of the same species could be reassuring. And I think you'll agree that the episode demonstrates that he was right about this. My only concern is leaving Tilly in charge. You know I love Tilly. She's one of my favourite characters, and you know I want to see her achieve her dreams of becoming a captain. But I'm still not convinced that she's ready for this yet. Although nobody knows the challenges that she's about to face. If the Emerald Chain didn't show up, she'd have been quite capable of holding the fort until the away team returned. But we'll get to that. We learn that the Emerald Chain are running military exercises near Kaminar. Osira is trying to lure Discovery out so she can steal the spore drive. Starfleet is going to handle that. Discovery has a job to do here. Did you notice that Vance is really sold on this mission to learn the source of the burn, now that they have some solid leads to follow? 
early in the season, he was very hesitant to expend any resources on this because there was more important things to deal with. Ironically, they could never have gotten to this place of solid leads if Michael hadn't have been like a dog with a bone in the first place. So Michael tells Book that she doesn't think Saru can be objective. She's not sure how he'll handle it if he has to make a hard call, a painful one. First of all, Michael herself doesn't have a great track record when it comes to difficult calls. Vance even called her out on the whole Arium thing earlier this season. I'm not saying that Michael is right or wrong, but I'm curious what has led her to this conclusion about Saru. I don't think any of this stuff is fair to his character. Stamets is freaking out about Kolba going away on this away mission. Now at first I thought this was really weird. This is Kolba's job. He's a Starfleet officer. Starfleet officers go into dangerous situations all the time. That's part of the deal if you're in Starfleet, or if you're in a relationship with someone in Starfleet. Stamets is both. Plus, Saru said that as long as they take the right medications with them, they should be fine. But I realised, actually my wife pointed it out, Stamets has already lost Kolba once, so I guess he's understandably overprotective here. Now despite what I said earlier about Tilly and her unreadiness to be first officer, I do really like how they develop this whole thing in the episode. First of all, we get a wonderful scene where Michael reassures Tilly and tells her the story about the little burr of metal under the arm of the captain's chair. How Giorgio used to press her finger against it to keep herself in the moment during difficult encounters. It's a wonderful exchange that they'll call back to a number of times. I love how she allows herself the moment of fear and anxiety with her trusted friend, and then sucks it up and says, okay, let's go. With medications, the away team will survive for four hours on the planet. Discovery's shields will take three hours to repair. After that, they can jump back and rescue the away team. And despite everything, Tilly looks good in that chair. Michael is right, she does belong there. It's her destiny. The away team arrive on the crashed ship, and this is where everything gets a little weird. The first thing we notice is that Michael is dressed differently. She and Kolba are in thick jackets with hoods. And then we realise that Kolba is a Bajoran, and Michael is a Trill. <laughs> now forgive me for thinking that we're suddenly watching Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. I mean, what's next? Is Saru going to be a penguin? No, Saru is human! I called it before we saw his face, just before the camera shot that slowly panned up from his feet. So we get to see Doug Jones out of makeup. That's kinda cool, because we can finally see all of his amazing face acting. Now don't get me wrong, nobody can act under all that prosthetic like Doug Jones can. He's a master. But he'll always be able to do more with his face without all of that stuff slapped on. The other weird thing is, they don't appear to be in a ship. They're outside, surrounded by snow. Of course, we learn quickly that they're on a holodeck inside the ship. The holodeck has changed their appearances. We know it could do that even in the 24th century. This is all very strange, and it is explained, at least somewhat, a little later. But I think the writers just wanted an excuse to get Saru out of makeup, and see the others as different species. They wanted to have some fun with us. The bad news is they've lost all of their equipment. No badges, 
and no medications. If Discovery returns as scheduled, they'll be sick, but alive. The first holodeck character we meet is wearing a new Starfleet uniform. We haven't seen this one before. It seems to be a bizarre blend of the Discovery uniform with the TNG uniform. It's got a very shiny version of the TNG comm badge. No idea if this is supposed to be a real uniform that was actually worn at some point in history. Until we see it outside the holodeck, I think we can basically dismiss it. Clearly, the holo programs are malfunctioning due to over 100 years of exposure to the radiation. When they enter a different part of the program, the holodeck changes their clothes again. They find a crumbling structure with some very cool-looking alien creatures flying in the distance. Here's a strange thing. Saru asks if human bodies react negatively to heights, because his heart is racing. So are we to assume the holodeck has somehow reconfigured Saru's internal organs? That doesn't make any sense. A surface level change to their appearance? Sure. But to make Saru's body react differently? That seems a little absurd, and completely unnecessary, as we'll soon learn when we discover the purpose of their transformation. They find the Kelpian child, now an adult male, and Saru's eyes nearly bug out of his head. Oh, it's another Kelpian! How amazing! It doesn't make any sense. The child assumes the away team are all programs, but Saru tries to explain that they are from outside the simulation. There's a door here containing something that scares the Kelpian. The door breaks open, but nothing comes out. The episode portrays the Kelpian as mentally a child, because he's never seen anything outside of this holodeck. Again, that doesn't make sense to me. Sure, his perspective will be limited, but his faculties should still have developed like anyone else. I mean, he has the brain of an adult. I'm not sure it makes sense for him to be mentally a child. A voice goes through the Discovery comm system. We've found them. A female voice. Why this voice is heard on Discovery is never explained, and it doesn't make any sense. We know who this is, but why is the voice being heard here? Anyway, Discovery has picked up another ship. A Federation ship. Now we all knew where we thought this was going, right? How many of you thought that this was going to be another USS Discovery, tying it into the Short Trek Calypso? I was relieved to find out that that wasn't where they were going. No, it's Osira, trying to sneak up on them by emitting a Federation signature. Apparently, she used a transwarp tunnel to get here. Book keeps saying that nobody will be silly enough to use one of these tunnels, but he has never explained why, and it seems Osiris' ship came through fine with no problems. Anyway, she's been tracking their ship since Quajon, and she wants Discovery's spore drive. She wouldn't mind the planet of Dilithium here either. It's nice to learn Discovery now has a cloaking device. This makes sense. Ever since the fall of Romulus, the Treaty of Algeron would no longer be in effect. But they can't jump while cloaked. Again, that makes sense. Starships don't seem to be able to do anything while cloaked. Kolba and Saru find more holo characters. One of them, a Vulcan, explains that this holo program was set up to raise the Kelpian child, educate him, and prepare him for the day when rescuers would finally arrive. Since he has never seen anybody outside of the program, the holodeck 
has changed their appearance to make them look like part of the program. Okay, that part makes sense. But why does Kolba fit into the program more as a Bajoran than as a human? Why does Saru fit in more as a human than as a Kelpian? They still look like themselves. This doesn't make any sense to me. Michael meets the creature behind the door. It looks very spectacular. Wonderful CGI. It chases her for a bit before she falls upward and finds herself in another room with the Kelpian. In order to not freak him out, she pretends to be a program, one designed to teach him how to interact with outsiders. Meanwhile, Saru and Kolba find a holographic representation of a Kelpian elder. They learn the Kelpian child's name is Sukal. That name symbolises the end of suffering and is given to a baby born after a hardship. Saru is enjoying what the elder is able to share with him, the song, how it reminds him of home. But that doesn't stop him doing his job. He's learning what he can from the book, and he realises what it is that Sukal is afraid of. It's a monster from Kelpian mythology. Apparently, no one will be able to leave this program until Sukal is willing to face the monster. Again, not sure why. The visuals of the fortress and the flying creature continue to be absolutely top-notch. At this point, Tilly is feeling a whole lot of anxiety. Facing down Osira in her heavily armed ship is not something that she expected to have to deal with on her very first time in the big chair. Tilly's lack of experience adds a whole new dimension of tension to these scenes. It's very effective. I find myself doubting Tilly's ability to handle the situation, but desperately wanting her to rise up to the challenge and prove me wrong. So even though I wouldn't have put an ensign in the number one position, I'm finding that this is a very effective storytelling here in this episode. Tilly is not feeling as confident as she's trying to portray to Osira. And yet, if you compare this scene to the scene in season one, where she pretended to be Killy while Lorca stood at her side, she is so much more confident now. She has come a long way. Osira is trying hard to convince Tilly she hasn't got what it takes, and Tilly is putting up a brave fight in this battle of wits. The away team are all back together again, and Sukal is face to face with the monster. And then something weird happens again. He pulses with a shockwave of energy. This energy disrupts Discovery's cloaking device, but worse than that, it starts to destabilise the dilithium in the ship's core. That sounds familiar. Sukal's shockwave almost caused another burn. So it seems that Sukal was the cause of the burn. How? Why? We don't understand. Why can he do this weird shockwave thing? We don't know. But it's all about him. Interesting. With both ships uncloaked, it's time for a battle. Tilly is making a hard call. She has to jump away to prevent Osira from getting the spore drive. She promises they'll come back for the away team. But it's not looking good for them. Book takes his ship and rescues them. But Adira also has a plan. She just needs Jet's badge. Saru manages to calm Sukal by singing a Kelpian song. As he calms, the monster scurries away. Nobody but Saru could have done this. Tilly says she'll self-destruct the ship rather than let Osira get it. It's a wonderful moment. 
but instead, when threatened, she tries to jump away. And that makes sense. Self-destruct should be a last resort. It makes sense that she'd try jumping first. Kolber theorises that being in utero amongst all this dilithium and subspace radiation explains why the radiation doesn't kill Sukal. Something must have happened to trigger him when the burn happened. Perhaps the death of his mother. Saru has to return to the ship to deal with Osira. He asks Michael to stay to help prevent Sukal from causing another burn. Michael argues that it should be Saru because of his connection to Sakal as a fellow Kelpian. And now Michael gets back on her Saru is compromised horse. He says he would never let his emotions factor into his decisions. She says he already has. I'm not buying that, sorry. Yes, he's a little distracted, although I don't think the episode has given him a good reason to be but he hasn't yet made any mistakes because of us. Look, if this is all part of the season's ongoing Saru learns to be a better captain arc, then I'm okay with it. But it's starting to feel like they're setting up to push him out of the captain's chair so Michael can take it. If that's where they're going, I'll be very disappointed. Colbert also wants to stay. He knows what it's like to be alone in a world that doesn't make sense. They'll only have an hour before the planet kills them, but Adira beams down with more radiation medication. That'll buy them more time. Osira takes over the ship by sheer force of numbers. Her people beam on board and secure both the bridge, and more importantly, the spore lab. Tilly doesn't have a chance to destroy the ship. Michael and Book arrive just in time to see Discovery and Osira's ship jump to Federation headquarters. End of episode. This is a thrilling cliffhanger, and I'm dying for next week's episode. I love the stuff with Tilly in the captain's chair, and I'm still loving Janet Kidder as Osira. And the stuff with Sukal was very interesting. I'm so glad that Michael Burnham wasn't the cause of the burn. It looks like we're gearing up for an epic ending to the series. Just two episodes left. I say bring it on. Overall, this season is doing a much better job than the last two seasons of paying off its mystery. And yet, there are still some threads that seem to have been dropped. Remember how the Vulcans were absolutely convinced that the SP-19 data proved that the burn started at Navarre? That's been conveniently forgotten. It doesn't add up to me. And what about that music? Will that come back and be any further explained? Because honestly, the little bit of explanation we had for that last time it was mentioned made very little sense. We've still got two episodes left, so the music at least might still get more exploration. But I'm not counting on it. And even without these elements being handled satisfactorily, it's still a strong overall season, in my opinion. But I'm pointing these things out because they do bug me somewhat. Anyway, far be it for me to end on a negative. I think next week is going to be a thrilling episode as Osiris strikes at the heart of Federation headquarters and we will hopefully learn some more fascinating things about Sukal and the Burn. I think we'll have a lot more to talk about regarding the season mystery this time next week. Next week's episode is called There is a Tide, formally announced as The Good of the People. It's another Jonathan Frakes episode, so that's always cool. 
I'm now officially on Christmas holidays and I won't have to return to work until mid-January. I plan to use some of this time to work hard on Jewel of the Stars Book 3 and get it published as soon as possible. I hope you had a good Christmas and have enjoyed some time off if possible. It's been a long weird year but it's almost over. Anyway, catch you next week. Live long and prosper. Make it so.